0: One more time. Can we say thank you to Angela? What an amazing story. Wow, 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 wow. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to start my sermon after that right there. Thank you, Angela, for sharing that. Isn't God good? It's just amazing. It's a miracle, really. I remember the first Sunday I saw Angela come in um, and I leaned over to Andrea during that video and I said, you know, it's amazing when Jesus changes you on the inside, how different you look on the outside. And uh, I'm not saying you looked awful, Angela, when you came in. I'm just saying that it's obvious that like Jesus is just all over you, which is amazing. So, hey, thank you for being here. My name's Jason. Uh, I'm the pastor and thanks for coming to Hope City. I'm glad you uh, made the decision to be here, whether you're watching online or a part of this service. Uh, thank you for doing that. I have, I don't have a lot of rules in my house. Let's just say that right there up front. I, I probably need to work on that. Um, you know, our parenting philosophy is not a lot of rules, a lot of hugs. And so we're, uh, working on that a little bit and kind of kidding. But I have one rule, uh, that I take very seriously and it's this, don't eat dad's leftovers. (laughs) That's, that's a real serious rule, especially if it's Chinese food, don't eat dad's leftovers. And, um, because with the Chinese food, this is not true with every food, but with the Chinese food, if you recook it on the stovetop, it's like the real thing. It's like fresh. It's like, like, you know, day one. And uh why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because today we're uh we're ending this Galatians series. We're at the very end of this letter. We've been doing this, this is the ninth week. And um what we're gonna read today is a little bit of leftovers. Um it's it's something that Paul has said, Paul wrote the letter of Galatians, it's something that Paul has said over and over and over again but he's gonna say it a little bit differently to us. He's gonna, he's gonna reheat it a little bit differently, reserve it a little bit differently, add some fresh soy sauce to it just a little bit, uh, put it in the stuff that we're not gonna microwave it. We're gonna stove top it and he's gonna, he's gonna freshen it up for us. Um, so what I wanna do is, I just wanna go ahead and read the verses because I have a lot I wanna say and that's the last week. I have to stop talking about Galatians, okay? So uh, let's read the verses and then we'll jump into it. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter six, verses 12 uh, through 16. This is what it says. It says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised wanna look good to others and don't wanna be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. As for me, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. That's a big one there. They are the new people of God. There is a, there's a scene in the um, beginning of the Wreck-It Ralph movie, One, Uh, that is awesome. It's Ralph in this support group with all the bad guys. You know what I'm talking about? And he's sitting there in this support group and they're talking about the challenges of being a bad guy. And Ralph wants to be a good guy. I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, but Ralph wants to be a good guy and he's a bad guy. And so he goes to support group to try to, you know, come to terms with being a bad guy. And uh, that's what the whole movie's about. But At the end of the meeting, if you've seen it, at the end of the meeting, Ralph and all of the bad characters from the game, they stand up and they end the meeting by saying the bad guy affirmation. The bad guy affirmation, and this is what it says. They all say together, they say, I'm bad and that's good. I'll never be good and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. Let me say it one more time. They say, I'm bad and that's good. I'll never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. And I was thinking about that scene because it's, first of all, it's just a really cute scene, but I bring it up because for the last eight weeks, we have uh, been saying over and over and over again that you can't earn your salvation. You can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to be saved. There's nothing you can do to, to, to gain, earn, uh, be worthy of being, of being saved. And the reason is because you're not good enough. You'll never be able to do enough good things for God to feel like you're worthy of being saved. This is what we've been saying over and over and over again. We've been, this is called the gospel. We've been reminded of the gospel, the good news The gospel is, let me just tell it to you again one more time. The gospel is that you are more weak and sinful than you believed, but more loved and accepted by God than you know. This is the gospel. You are more weak and sinful than you believe, but more loved and accepted by God than you know. And you'll never be good enough for God, but you don't have to be because God sent Jesus to do the work for you. We have beat this drum and beat this drum. And I hope if you've been a part of this, if this is your first week, we're gonna beat it again. But if, if but if you've been here, I hope you're getting this. I hope this has been sinking in and getting into your heart that you are more sinful and wicked and weak than you could ever believe. You're more loved and accepted than you could ever know. You'll never be good enough for God, but you don't have to be good enough for God because Jesus came and you get credit for Jesus' life because he took credit for yours. We've been saying this is the gospel over and over and over again. The question is, what do we do with that? What, what do we do with that? Should we embrace the bad guy affirmation? Should that be our stance? You know what? I'm bad and that's good. That's what Jason said. I'm bad. And that's good. I'll never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one else I'd rather be than me. Is this what a Christian should embrace? I mean, if the gospel is true that I'm more sinful and wicked and weak, and and I'm more loved, like if that's true, then then is 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 that my is that my motto? Is that my affirmation? I'm bad, and that's good. I'll never be good, and that's not bad. Is that what we is that what we should say? A culture would tell you not to let religion make you feel guilty about being yourself. Don't let religion stifle you, repress you, be yourself. Don't feel guilty. You only have one life, live it. And then here I am saying that yeah, you are weak and you are sinful, and there is this kind of feeling attached to all of this that we should maybe, if we're misunderstanding it a little bit, we should just resign ourselves to being bad. The other night um, I was putting my two boys to bed and uh, it's always a, a, a time filled with future sermon illustrations when you put the boys to bed, especially with Solomon because his brain works faster than his mouth and. And, or his fat, mouth works faster than his brain. And um, and so we were having a tough time last couple of nights getting the, kid to stay, getting the kids to stay in bed and go to sleep and, and things like that. And so I I, I I try to start with Solomon, who's the oldest son. I wanna, you know, lead by example. We have this thing we say around the house, say, what's your last name? He'll say, Isaacs. So we'll say, what does that mean? You know, he'll say, that means I'm a leader. I make good choices. Right. I lead by example. You know, we're, we're, you know, pumping him up. And, um, so I want to start with Solomon. So I, so I get, you know, uh, fatherly love. I tuck him into the bed, you know, get him in there real good. And, and, and I'm whispering to him. And Zeke's in the other bed like, what are you saying? What are you saying? And I'm whispering to Solly. And I said, buddy, listen, I know that in that brain of yours, I've seen it. I know that you can make good choices. I know it. I've seen you, it's when, it, when you do it, it is so awesome. And so here's what I'm gonna do I'm gonna talk to your brain and I'm gonna tell your brain something. And then we're gonna, we're gonna, we want that brain to remind us uh, when, we're, when we're about to make a bad choice, we want our brain to remind us to make a good choice. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to your brain right now. You just lay right there, let daddy talk to your brain. And so I get up close to his ear and I say, brain, listen to me. I, I, I want you to make good choices, brain. And when, and when you start thinking about getting out of bed or fighting with your brother or you know, hitting him with the pillow or you know, screaming, or, brain, I want you to remember that we're gonna stay in bed and we're gonna keep our eyes closed and we're gonna go to sleep. And I said, Solomon, I've told your brain, so your brain knows. And so when, when your brain starts thinking bad, you, you think good choices. He said, dad, my brain doesn't say stuff like that. My brain never says that. My brain tells me bad stuff, dad. It never says that. And isn't it true that in some way, like, we kind of feel that way? My brain never says the good stuff. My brain's always telling me the bad stuff. My, my heart, my brain is always trying to pull me off track and trying to get me. This is, this is what we've been saying. This is what the Bible teaches. We're not in denial of the fact that there is this real darkness in us. There is this real badness. And Pastor Megan said last week that We're conflicted Christians because the sinful desires, before Jesus, we were all sinful desire. And then after Jesus, the Holy Spirit moved in. So now we've got sinful desires and the Holy Spirit waging war, the Bible says, inside of us. And so we admit that there is this darkness, this desire, this flesh, this sinful thing that is happening. So do we just say, you know what, until heaven, I'm just going to be bad? And that's good and it's okay, and there's nobody I'd rather be than me. Well, in these verses that we read, Paul is gonna give us a really clear answer, and the answer he gives us is no. Do not, because it's true that you're more weak and and, and sinful than you, don't embrace this bad guy affirmation. It is true that you are bad, but it's not true that there's no one that you could ever be other than who you are right now. The gospel and Christianity tells us that there is someone I'd rather be than me. And there is someone that you should rather want to be than, than you. And in verse 15, He sums up the entire letter, six six chapters, nine weeks. He sums up the entire letter when he says this. He says, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. The Christian life is not about being yourself. It's about believing and receiving grace from Jesus. It's about leaving who you were before behind. And being transformed, we've been using this word over and over again, being transformed, not just changing, not just moving around the furniture, not just acquiring some better habits, but being transformed from the inside out into a completely new creature, creation. And we've used this quote a lot over the the years. and It's so fitting. I want to use it again. It's from C.S. Lewis. Wreck it, Ralph, to C.S. Lewis. We're progressing here. And he said it like this He said, God became man to turn creatures into sons not simply to produce better men or women of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. We've used this, and why? Because it's so beautiful, this idea that when, when, you're, when, when you have this revelation of Jesus, when you recognize that you'll never be good enough, but that, but that Jesus was, and you get credit for that, What happens to you is not you become a better version of your bad self. You start becoming a brand new creature. Here's the problem. The problem is that most Christians I meet don't have wings. Most most Christians I meet are not being transformed. And I don't say that as like a backhanded dagger I'm saying that with a real sadness, with a real confusion. As a matter of fact, most Christians I meet or talk to are very underwhelmed. They're very dissatisfied. Not being transformed, not a new creature. And I wonder how that can be. Because here Paul is saying that the number one absolute most important thing, the number one characteristic of a Christian life is deep, lasting transformation. Like becoming a completely different person. And then C.S. Lewis said that it's like a horse getting its wings. Has that been what it's felt like to you? Has that been your experience? Deep, lasting transformation and a soul with wings? Has that been your experience with Christianity, meeting Jesus? And as you think about most Christians, you know, is that their experience? I think it's so interesting that because we kind of all know that this doesn't happen, like it should, when there are those that do, we are just in awe. We marvel at how they have been so transformed. But Paul tells us that that's how it's supposed to be For everyone who finds Jesus, we point to someone and say, I mean, they are just totally different. It's just, I can't believe, like it's so miraculous. And we hold them up like one out of a thousand or one out of a hundred and say, well, hasn't Jesus changed their life? But it's not supposed to be one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand. That Jesus is supposed to radically change every life that finds him. Has that been your experience? Has that been your experience with most Christians that you know? Probably not. Probably not. And I want to tell you why I think that is. Now, what I'm about to tell you is my opinion. It's not the Bible. It's my opinion. But I think the reason that that is is because in so many instances, we only get like halfway saved. Now, that's not a Bible term. you never find that in the Bible. I don't even know I can back that up theologically, but here's what I mean. It's like we get halfway to Christianity. It's like we're like, we take one step in the door, but, but we don't go all, all the way in. And here's what I mean. I think a lot of people, I'm gonna include myself in this category, initially believe that we need to become a Christian because we've done something bad in the past, Like I'm getting saved because I've been bad or I'm unhappy or I'm miserable or because I don't want to be one of those bad people. And so we ask God for forgiveness for all the things that we've done. But somewhere in all of that, we believe that Christianity is forgiveness for your past and responsibility for your future. Does that make sense? So somewhere we've got it like, God, I really am sorry for everything I've ever done, and I won't ever be that bad again. I will need you to help me. I'm not crazy, but I'll never be that bad again. So it's forgiveness for my past and responsibility for my future. And we need to move forward trying our trying our best. And And here's how this kind of plays out. Maybe you've prayed some form of this prayer before. Here's the prayer that most people pray, God, I'm sorry that I've been bad. I'll be good, I promise. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I'm so sorry, God. I am so sorry. I, just forgive me. I'll never do it again. Anybody ever prayed, I'll never do it again prayers? Anybody? Come on. Just me and about four of us. Liars, Okay. <laughs> God, I I will never do it again. I promise. And it's coming from a good place. We don't want to do it again. We don't want to disappoint God. We don't want to take advantage of the grace of God. But you do, and you will. Because there is this sinful desire inside of you that is conflicting with the spirit 's desires inside of you, so what you 're saying when you 're saying god i 'm so sorry i 'm so stupid i 'm so dumb i 'm so awful i 'm so terrible i 'm so undisciplined i 'm so and god i 'm so sorry, and I promise I will try never to do it again what you 're saying, whether you realize it or not is what you 're saying is god if you 'll forgive the past i 'll handle the future I want everybody to listen to me that 's not christianity and that is not salvation it's not that will never transform you that will never give you wings and here's why because that's not grace that's pressure hear me the reason that's not christianity and it will never transform your life is because that is not grace you are not receiving grace that's not grace that's pressure That's trying to earn it. And what Paul says here is so counterintuitive and so powerful that everything inside of us wants to reject it. As a matter of fact, most of us do. Most religious people do reject this. Look at it again. He says, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. Now, of course, circumcision is not the issue for us. We've said this over and over again. But this represents anything that feels like a requirement to be a Christian. So what happens is the false teachers come in and they are telling the Galatian Christians that this is a requirement. Listen, nothing wrong with being circumcised to, to, the, to, the, to the Galatian non-Jewish Christians. Get circumcised if you want. But it's not a requirement to be a Christian. And they're saying it's a requirement. You have to believe in Jesus and really mean it. Believe in Jesus and be circumcised. Believe in Jesus and be committed. Believe in Jesus and follow the Old Testament. This is what they're telling them. And they're saying, you know what? We'll know, this is how we'll know, and this is how God will know that you really mean it. We'll just watch. Time will tell. We'll see. I mean, you're not like totally saved yet. Like You're kind of halfway in, but we'll see. We'll see how well you do with the responsibility of actually being a Christian, and then we'll decide. And Paul shows up and he's like, Hogwash. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. That's not Christianity, that's pressure. And it feels offensive or unsettling. And if there's something inside of you that like, I don't know about that. You are finally beginning to understand why Christianity is so offensive. It's offensive to the liberal person. I'm not talking politically, I'm talking mentally. It's offensive to the liberal person because it feels so exclusive. Like, well, all good people should get in. Well, if all good people get in, then what am I gonna do? I don't get in. I'm not good. But it's offensive to the conservative person because they say, you mean just anybody can get in? If there hasn't been a part of Christianity at some point that to you tastes offensive or bitter or harsh or unfair in some way, I'm not sure you've totally understood it yet. And that's why... Paul said that the false teachers didn't want to teach it in verse 12. Look at what he said about the, the, he calls on the false teachers. He says, they don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. They know it's true, but if they say it, they will be persecuted. Now, why would you be persecuted that the cross alone can save? Because you're persecuted by people who think you don't need the cross, you need to be good. And you're persecuted by people who say the cross is not enough. It's offensive. And it's offensive because it means that if you have worked your whole life to be faithful to your spouse, you've never cheated on her or him, it means that your soul is in the exact same condition as the spouse who gives in every single time. You both need the cross. It means that if you hear Angela's hope story and you've never smoked a joint and you've never drank a beer and you've never done a line or whatever, your soul is in the exact same condition as the person passed out or maybe OD'd on the floor of a meth house this morning. Both need the cross. Now, if there's something inside of you when I say that that says that's ridiculous, I would never do that. I. We are not in the same place. You're starting to get it. It means that if you've worked your whole life to get out of debt and establish a career and be responsible with your money, your soul is in the exact same condition as that person that wastes their paycheck every time they get it, the day they get it on some habit, some gambling, some degenerate at the horse track. that for both of you, only the cross of Jesus Christ can save. Now I wanna be clear, it does matter uh, to other people. It doesn't matter to your salvation, but if you rob a bank, that will matter to a judge. If you cheat on your spouse, that will matter to your spouse. If you hold grudges and don't forgive, that will matter to your family experience. So I'm not saying it doesn't matter in the realm of life or it even matters to your physical health or mental health or emotional health. Of course it matters. But as, but as a requirement for salvation, Paul is saying here, it doesn't matter whether you are the most disgusting individual that anyone has ever known or the most moral, upstanding, disciplined, wise person. Matter of fact, more C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says if we had a world of really moral non-Christian people, it would make it that much harder to preach the gospel because you wouldn't be able to convince them they actually needed it. That's why we usually find God at the bottom. There are no other requirements to be saved other than believing in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And something, again, just feels off about that And this is why it's so hard to be a Christian because we've said this over and over again that all it takes to be a Christian is nothing. But most of us don't have it. It can't be nothing, Jason. There's gotta be something I contribute. There's gotta be something that I can do. There's gotta be something that I can show God I mean it. I'm serious, God. I'm worth it, God. Most of my life, I believed when Jesus said, Jesus in the gospels, when he was teaching, he he said, narrow is the way and very few find it, talking about the kingdom of God. And most of my life, I I thought that meant that most people won't be Christians because it's hard and requires discipline and sacrifice. And most people don't want to do that. They'd rather live it up, be out in the world, you know, whatever. But I don't believe that anymore. Honestly, I don't. I, I think the biggest stumbling block to salvation is not that it's too hard. I think that it's too simple. That, the, that, that hardworking, driven, type A, American, Western person can't believe that it takes nothing. We have to accomplish something. And what makes you a Christian is not repeating a prayer or feeling bad or filling out a card. Matter of fact, towards the end of the service, we're gonna raise our hand if you wanna start a relationship with Jesus and you're gonna repeat a prayer. That doesn't make you a Christian. We're trying to help you start the process on a conversation with God, but that's not what makes you a Christian. You become a Christian the moment that your head and your heart in some supernatural, unexplainable way finally understand. And accept that you'll never be good enough for God, but you don't have to be because Jesus took your punishment and you get his reward. And when your head and your heart supernaturally somehow through the Holy Spirit go, oh my God. Jason's been preaching this for nine weeks, but... You're saying, wait a second, you're saying I get Jesus's reward because he took my punishment and I'll never be good enough for God, but I don't have to be. Wait a second. Something happens supernaturally and in your head and your heart. The Bible calls it a revelation of Jesus. Jesus said that until you see me lifted up, you'll never know who I am. There's something about the cross like... Oh, light bulb, spiritual, I just got it. That's what makes you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is not how you vote politically. It's not what you do with your Sunday mornings. It's not how much money you give in the offering. It is the moment when your heart and your head supernaturally finally, in some spiritual way, understands why in the world we need Jesus. And we actually believe it. I'll never be good enough. I don't have to be. I get credit for Jesus's life because he came and took credit for mine. And can I be honest with you? After talking to a lot of you over the past two months during this series, I believe some of you have been coming to church for a really long time and even have said for a long time that you believed in Jesus, but your faith wasn't really in Jesus. Your faith has always been in yourself but some of you, I've been talking to you, we've been talking, you've been asking questions, you've been texting, you've been, you've been coming up after service, and, and, and I, this is just my opinion, I believe that some of you have actually been converted during this series. And you didn't raise your hand and you didn't say that prayer, like, cause you raised your hand, you're always saying it to support other people or whatever else. And, and maybe it wasn't even about a prayer. Maybe it was driving down the road or maybe it was listening to a podcast or maybe it was sitting in your living room. But there was a moment, you're like, I've been going to church for 20 years or man, I've been around, I was in the youth group and now I'm, and, and you know, but like, you would say, you know what? I think I actually, for the first time, Get it I think you've been converted and do you know what's about to happen to you I know you've been in church for a long time and I know you've been a you know a proclaiming Christian for a long time but if your heart and your head in some supernatural way has now come to understand Jesus and the gospel in some way do you know what's about to happen to you you're about to get wings it's about to make sense because this whole time you've been like, I don't get it. I mean, I'm trying, I'm here. I'm, I'm a part of the team, I'm in. But the whole time you're thinking, I don't, I don't think my experience is like their experience. You know what's about to happen? You're about to get wings. Something is about to happen inside of you. A transformation is about to happen. And up until now, there's really been no life in it. And yeah, maybe you cried during a worship song, you were going through a tough time. Maybe you got goosebumps because you felt the presence of God and the spirit of God. Maybe you even had some spiritual high moments, but there has been real no life in it, no freedom in it. You are about to experience the spirit of God, the power of God at work in your life. Like with you, Holy Spirit's moving in. Your faith's not going to be in yourself anymore. It's going to be in the work of Jesus Christ. And so these false teachers show up in Galatia and they're telling the Christians, we'll know you're really a Christian when you change. Have you ever felt that? Sure you have. We all have. We'll know you're really a Christian when you change. And Paul says, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard because you don't even have to worry about trying to change if you're a Christian. You see, you see what he's saying? The, 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 the false teachers are saying, we'll see. And if you change, we'll know. Paul says that, that that's, that's trying to earn it. You don't have to feel any pressure to change. Because if you have put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit of God will move into your life and you will begin to change in ways beyond your ability to change. Now, I'm not saying that change will feel easy. I'm not even saying that it won't feel like a a root canal or a heart canal or, you know, open heart surgery, not a heart canal. You know what I mean? But like, I... Of course the process of transformation has painful experience. They're gonna be growing pains, (laughs) pruning, of course. But you never have to look in the mirror and say, I'll get it together, God, I promise. I will, I promise, I promise. So I've used up all my time on the introduction. I'm just kidding. That wasn't the introduction. (laughs) But I do wanna finish this way. These verses that we read, Paul shows us two different ways. If if everything I just told you is true, and it is, then Paul shows us two different ways to live the Christian life. He shows us the wrong way and he shows us the right way. They were right there in these verses that we read. I wanna show them to you. How do you know? Jason, you're kind of scaring me a little bit. I mean, I do, I, is my heart and my head aligned? Like, have I had that, that revelation of Jesus? I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying here. Like, how do I know? How do I know that my faith is not in myself? How can I be sure, Jason, that I understand the gospel? Well, Paul gives us just a little test. Just a little a little test for us to, to look and take an inventory of our life. And first, let me show you the wrong way. He gives us a wrong way and he gives us a right way. I wanna show you the wrong way. How do I know if my faith is in myself? If I'm trying to earn it. Look at verses 12 and 13. He's describing the false teachers whose faith is 100% in themselves. And this is what he says. He says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised wanna look good to others. They don't wanna be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't keep the whole law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so they can boast about it and claim you as their disciples. So look at what he says. He's describing a type of person whose faith is not in the cross, but is in themselves. Prove it, show it, earn it. And this is how he describes them. He says, these types of people prioritize behavior and accomplishment because they wanna look good. They don't actually do everything they say they should do and they really only want to achieve so they can be proud of themselves. These are the three filters that he uses to describe people whose faith is in themselves. They crave approval, they live hypocritically and they feel superior. You see it? He says, these guys, they're talking big spiritual mumbo jumbo, but they crave approval, they live hypocritically and they feel superior. Is that you? I mean, it's all of us at different times. This is not a 100-0 scenario. It's all of us at different times when we forget the gospel. We forget that God sees us as a perfect beauty, but then we shift the responsibility and the pressure back on us. We put our faith back in ourself. And And the way you know that your faith is in yourself is you crave approval. You can't do it because... You got too much sinful nature in you, so then you fake it because you can't let everybody know what's really going on. So you crave approval. The approval drives you to be hypocritical. And then, even though you are a disaster, you convince yourself that you are somehow superior to people. Does that sound like your experience with Christianity? If it does, it's because your faith is in yourself, it's not in Jesus Christ. That's the wrong way. Craving approval, living hypocritically, feeling superior. These are ways that I know that my faith is not in the cross of Christ. My faith is in myself. Here's here's how we do it the right way. How how do we live the Christian life? What does it look like to take the faith off of myself and put it in Jesus? Paul tells us in verse 14, this is what he says. He says, as for me, Those guys, they crave approval. They live hypocritically. They feel superior. But as for me, Paul says, may I never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world has been crucified and the world's interest in me has also died. Maybe you've heard this verse before. It's kind of a famous one, but Paul is saying here that I only boast in the cross. What does that mean? Is Paul describing some false humility Uh, I grew up around this. It's this false humility that's like, you give somebody a compliment and they're like, no, it's all him, man. Just point to the sky, you know? It's like, no, man, it's not about me. You know, it's it's a big man upstairs. But you know that that's not true, you know? Is he describing some like humble, brag, false? Like I would never, I only boast in the cross. no, no he he said that that when your faith is in yourself you're living to be proud of what you do and how you do it but when you when but when your faith is in the cross you only boast in the cross how do we do that what is it and how do we how do we do it let me ask it this way i'm going to ask you some questions and i want you to take a moment to just internalize these, I want you to answer this question. What is the thing about yourself that you believe makes you most valuable? I want you to think about this. Everybody has an answer in the room. What is the thing about you that makes you most valuable? Like if we were redrafting the human race and you had to pitch yourself to all the coaches who are drafting, what's your sales pitch? Like, what is the most valuable thing about you? I'm funny. I'm smart. I'm beautiful. I'm kind. I'm disciplined. I'm fit. I'm really good with people. I go the extra mile. Everybody has an answer. What is the thing about you? It's probably the thing people brag on the most. What is the thing about you that makes you the most valuable? And listen, don't just say Jesus because you know that's the answer, okay? I want you to answer honestly. If I said to you, what's the greatest thing about you, what would you say? If you would say my kids are the greatest thing about me, then then what you're saying is what the most valuable thing about you is that you are a parent. So, So what is the most valuable thing about you? I'm gonna ask this one other way to get to what Paul is trying to say. What? What is the thing or the things that you really want? And if you had it, you're pretty sure you would have peace. You would be settled. You would be content if you had it. Think about that. If you had it or you accomplished it, there would be some small part of you that would feel more credible or lovable or valuable. And listen, there's no wrong answer. Your answer may be a boat, but it's not that you want the boat. It's that you want freedom or you want to be envied. It may be marriage or having a child, but it's not even that you want a child. There's a reason you want the child. There's a reason you want to get married. It may be a new house or a new neighborhood or it may be, you know, to be important, whatever it is, there's a reason. What what is the thing that you say, you know what? If I had this, a million dollars, if I had it, I wouldn't feel this way anymore. I would have... I would, have, I would have peace. I'd be more credible, more lovable, more valuable. Just to help you as you're on this journey, I wanna open up a little bit and tell you what my answer is. The thing that, that every day tries to convince me that if I had this, that I, I wouldn't feel just like I had to strive and, and, and work so hard. For me, it's this idea that I have to do something important to be important. I have to do something important. I have to do something significant in order to be considered significant. This is the narrative that runs in in my head. For all my life, I've believed that I have to make a big impact or do something significant to be valued by people. And you have an answer too. And maybe it's being considered smart or being a mom or an amount of money or a title or being beautiful or important. But there is something or some things that you are convinced if you did it or you had it, that nagging feeling of inadequacy would go away. I'm going to tell you something that when I realized that it, it changed my life, this is not preacher hyperbole. This is the God's honest truth. When I, when, when I understood what I'm about to tell you, it radically changed my life. When you're able to answer that question that I ask you, you'll be able to trace every sin in your life back to that answer, every one. Everything that you do that pulls you away from God is connected to the thing that you think you need to, to, to get rid of that nagging feeling of inadequacy, to feel valuable and loved. Every sin that pulls me away from God is is somehow convinced me that it will make me important or credible, right? And so you can trace it back. And here's, um, I'm out of time, but I, I I wanna wrap this up for you. Martin Luther said it like this. He said, nothing can take away sin, but the grace of God. But in actual living, it's not easy to persuade yourself that by grace alone, in opposition to every other means, we obtain the forgiveness of our sins and peace with God. It's impossible to gain peace of conscience by the methods and means of the world. Such devices only increase doubt and despair. We find no rest for our weary bones unless we cling to the word, uh, to the word grace. Here's what Martin Luther is saying is that until you actually believe it's grace, you'll never get rid of nagging inadequacy. And whatever you run to, to feel that, to accomplish that, will only leave you with doubt and despair. Because when you don't have it, there'll be this discontentment. I need it, I need it, I need it, I need it, right? But, but, when, but when you do have it, When you do have it, there's gonna be this this anxiety that you you can't do anything to lose it. You better not lose it. And then if you do lose it, it'll be despair and anxiety because who are you? What makes you valuable? And so anything that we go to, that thing that that, that we believe makes us most valuable, listen, that is the thing that we boast in. And we don't hang up a banner outside our house that says, I'm a great mom but we do it in other ways. And what we're saying is, this makes me valuable. And whether we realize it or not, we go to God and we say, God, aren't I valuable? Aren't, I'm a great mom, God, because I love you. And, and, and Christian moms should be the best moms. God, I work hard and I make good money and I give and I tithe because I'm generous. See, God, I'm not that bad. And when Adam and Eve sinned and man fell, sin came into the heart and civilization, have, we've been spending the rest of our lives trying to fix that feeling that we are separated from God. And God fixed it for us in Jesus Christ. But until we accept that, We will boast in everything else that we have or that we do. But Paul says, when I finally realized that I get credit for Jesus's life because he took credit for mine. When I finally realized I'll never be good enough for God, but I don't have to be. I realized that the only thing that makes me valuable is the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing I boast in. There's only one thing that you can ever have that will settle your soul that will give your life a real purpose and transform you. And it is knowing that you are truly loved by God, that you are a beauty to him, that you are perfect and flawless. And it has absolutely nothing to do with what you do, but it has everything to do with what Jesus did for you. And listen to me, if you ever truly believe that, and if you ever truly receive that, everything changes. Your soul gets wings. And so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna pray for us. And normally at the end of service, uh, one of our pastors comes up and gives you an opportunity to commit your life to Christ. But I decided today I wanna do it. So um, I believe that there are some of you here today that that are feeling this sense that like, you know what? I am a proclaiming Christian, but I don't know that my faith has ever not been in myself. And so what I'm gonna do today is I'm going to encourage those of you who are embarrassed to raise your hand because you think everyone else already thinks you're a Christian. I'm gonna encourage you today to take a step and just say, God, I don't know, and I can't explain it all, but I'm pretty sure everything he just said described me. And I don't really think my soul's had wings. And I'm a good dad and I coach little league and I come to church and I tithe and I'm a good mom and I serve and I'm on a hope team. But I don't know if I've ever truly believed that you're the most valuable thing about me and that it's the cross that does it for me. And I've thought it was me. And so, yeah, everybody thinks I'm a Christian and I'm a leader and I'm a team leader and I'm a hope member and I'm a staff member. I'm one of the pastors. And so I can't raise my hand because I know some people peak, but today we're, we're gonna give everybody... A guilt-free, I wanna put my faith in Jesus and stop putting my faith in myself, okay? We don't get anything for that. We don't get paid by the number of hands that go up, okay? So there's no, there's nothing. This is for you and the step that you wanna take. So will you bow your heads with me? God, thank you for Jesus. thank you god that uh <laughs> that you <clears throat> thank you god Thank you, God, that you took all the pressure off when you sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for my sin. And God, I've spent my whole life trying to prove to you that I'm worth it. there was never a moment when you didn't believe I already was. Because you sent Jesus. So God, I pray for every person in this room right now who has lived their life carrying the weight of responsibility and the weight of pressure to be awesome, to be good, to be noble, to be disciplined, to have it together. And I pray that maybe for the first time in our whole life, we would truly believe that we don't have to be that anymore. Because of Jesus, we get his reward, and he takes our punishment. So, God, I don't want us to live with our faith in ourself anymore. However it works, whatever your Holy Spirit does, I pray that right now in this moment, our heart and our head would somehow align in some way, and this message of Galatians over all of these weeks would somehow finally come Together, and we would realize that we are a beauty, perfect and flawless in your eyes because of Jesus Christ. Nobody looking around. But you'd say, That's me. Maybe you would say, Jason, I am a lifelong halfway Christian. Maybe you're watching online right now and you'd say, I'm a lifelong halfway in Christian. I always thought that it was about forgiveness, but then it was my responsibility. Maybe you're here and you would say, I don't even know what you're describing. What would it even feel like to not feel the weight of the world on my shoulders to be a good person, to get it together? And you would say, my faith has been in myself and there's no life in it and there's no freedom in it. But today I wanna put my faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody's looking around. Is that you? Would you just throw your hand up? Yeah. Just keep them up. Yeah. Yeah. Just keep them up. God, you see all the hands. You see all the, the big time, awesome Christians with their hands up, God. You see all the leaders. You see all the, the religious church attending, tithing people with their hands up, God. You don't need any of that from us. All you want from us is nothing. And so God, I pray That the Holy Spirit would move into their heart for real, for real, for real. That right now in this moment, they would feel the power of the Holy Spirit moving in. And God, it's going to take some time, and you're working on us. But God, I pray that today would be minute one, moment one of those wings sprouting on our souls. And we would leave this place knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that our faith is in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. You can put them down. Amen.